You are listening to Rio Bravo Q Week podcast, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program in Bakersfield, California, a UCLA-affiliated program sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. This podcast was created for educational purposes only. Visit your primary care provider for additional medical advice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Rio Bravo Q Week. Uh, my name is Hector Arias. I'm a faculty member of the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program. And today is June 6, 2023. We're recording this episode um, a few weeks in advance um, because um, this guest is very interested in teaching you guys about pulmonary coccidiodomycosis. And I hope I said it right. We say we call it coxy. But today we are going to be listening to episode 143. I have my guest here. His name is Love Deep. So uh, can you introduce yourself, Love Deep? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Ariaza. I'm a medical school graduate. Uh, currently, I am a research associate in, at the Valley Fever Institute. I first authored publications of which include the um, in the Journal of Fungi. Um, I've had over 10 presentations locally, regionally, as well as internationally, and I'm excited to be here. Very good. So we call medical school graduates doctors. So <laughs> Dr. Kuhner, thank you for being here. So um, Dr. Kuhner is, is an applicant for the match for the next cycle. So if you are listening to this interesting presentation and you're interested in hearing more, just keep, um, you know, contact us via email. We'll be happy to give you the information that we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to be talking about coxy, which is, uh, I would call it like a rare, but actually very common disease in this area. Uh, we live in Bakersfield, California, and we're kind of in the in the epicenter, I would say. I know Arizona and Bakersfield were the epicenters of um, this disease, but we're going to be learning more about this. And I'm actually surprised it took us 143 episodes <laughs> to talk about this, <laughs> which is like very common in our area. But uh, Lobdeep or Dr. Kuna, he's going to be discussing this topic with us today. So let's start with the definition, Dr. Kuna. So what's pulmonary coxy? Yeah, thank you. Um, and that word is very difficult. So let us break it down. It's coccidioidomycosis. Um, it's also known as valley fever. It's an infection caused by the fungi coccidioides immatis and coccidioides posidosi. Coccidioides is also referred to as coxy as we have. Generally speaking, C. immatis is found in California and C. posidosi is found in Arizona and Central and South America. More recently, coxy has also been found as far north as Washington and British Columbia. So yeah, and you mentioned that it's found in South America, and I'm from South America originally, and I went to medical school there. But I don't remember any cases. I mean, maybe it was probably underdiagnosed. Probably we're not aware of the diagnosis down there. I don't know if it has changed, but I graduated medical school many years ago. But it's interesting that it's, you know, it's basically everywhere. Um, except in very cold areas in the North America, but in South America it's also present. So, and I actually um, heard that part of the history of this disease occurred in South America, right? Yeah, yeah. So the fungal infection was first reported by Wernicke and Posadis in Argentina in 1892, where they described a case where a man had cutaneous coxie of the head, the arm, and the trunk. To this day, the head is still preserved in Argentina, for many years, only disseminated cases were recognized and described as coccidioidal gran granulomas. 
The work of Dixon and Gifford in 1935, they're the ones that elucidated that a pneumonic disease of unknown cause termed San Joaquin Valley fever was in fact the primary coccidioidal infection and the port of entry of almost all coccidioidal disease. Initial infection occurs predominantly by inhalation of aerosolized arthroconidia and rarely by direct cutaneous inoculation. Yeah, and now that you mentioned the name San Joaquin Valley fever, so the, we are living in the San Joaquin Valley, so that's why the fever, I mean, the, the disease is so common here. Now that you mentioned direct um, cutaneous inoculation, so I remember this anecdote, I don't know if it's reported anywhere, but a patient uh, who had scratches because he had a car accident here in the San Joaquin Valley, and then, um, you know, he scratches his legs. Uh, give me one second. Sorry for the interruption, you know, we were in clinic and we sometimes get calls and anyways. So I was telling about this patient who had an accident in the, in the San Joaquin Valley and he had scratches on his leg and he went back home wherever he was living and the scratches were not healing. So it's because he had a direct inoculation of the um, arthroconidium in, arthroconidium in, the, in the skin. So he had a, actually a, an infection by coxy on the skin. So that's interesting, I think. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. So the infection of the coccidioid species, um, you know, it's interesting that it was on the floor because it survives best in areas with low, low rainfall and it is a soil dwelling um, fungi. So the limited winter freezes is also good for it as well as alkaline soils. Again, with climate change models predicting the geographical range expansion, you know, and it is interesting that even a one degrees change for an organism that lives in a strict environment, um, you can see the spread fairly quickly. Um, not just this, but other organisms as well. So these dimorphic fungi exist in mycelial form in the soil. And the species have been found in animal burrows near the Kern River and also in armadillo burrows in South American countries like Brazil. The mycelia produce arthroconidia, which are like spores that are ultimately airborne and inhaled. The inoculum required for infection is low, and in animal models, as few as a single arthroconidium may cause an infection. That's interesting. So a single little tiny cell can cause you an infection. So, um, but how do we get infected? Let's start by this, describing that process. Yeah, so once the arthroconidia are inhaled into the lung, there's typically a one to three week incubation period. The arthroconidia undergo morphological changes into spherules, which are large structures that contain endospores. As spherules mature, they rupture and release endospores. These spores can be spread hematogeneously or through lymphatics to essentially any organ, leading to the development of new spherules and potentially disseminated disease. Yeah, uh, that's very, very interesting. And I understand that not everyone who inhales arthroconidia gets infected. So, uh, but when you get infected, Let's talk about how do you present, like what are the clinical manifestations? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So 60% of patients who do inhale them are asymptomatic. 30% have a mild respiratory illness like the flu, and 10% have a more serious disease course and are diagnosed. Other symptoms may include fever, drenching night sweats, and weight loss. Extreme fatigue that limits baseline activity may also raise concerns. Symptom onset up to two months after endemic exposure should lead to coccidiomycosis on the differential. The coccidiomycosis cases have been documented in Michigan, Europe, and China. These cases were people who traveled to endemic areas for as little as a few days and then were later diagnosed. 
So 1-3% of all coxie cases are disseminated, severe or chronic pulmonary infections. If undiagnosed, coccidiomycosis may lead to significant morbidity and mortality. The dissemination sites include the skin, lymph nodes, bones, and central nervous system, which is the most severe. Any organ can be infected, including documented cases of the prostate and even the adrenal glands. Wow, it can go anywhere. So just as a recap, what you mentioned is like 60% of the cases are subclinical or asymptomatic. And then when you actually have symptoms, 30% of those people are they are mild and 10% they have serious. Or uh, And out of those 10%, 1 to 3% are disseminated. So that's that's good to know because, you know, we have outdoor activities in, in this area and we know that most of us are going to be asymptomatic or going to have a subclinical disease and hopefully be cured. But if we are the unlucky ones, <laughs> you know, that have a severe infection or a disseminated infection, then we can have uh, severe consequences. So, but let's talk about like what makes you or what puts you at higher risk of the severe infection? Yeah, it's a good question. So severe pulmonary infection, it can happen to anyone. I want to make that very clear but it occurs more commonly in diabetics, tobacco users, and people older than 65 years of age. Oceanic or Filipino ethnicity and black or African-American have a higher rate of dissemination. Immunosuppression, including HIV, transplant patients, and immunosuppressive medications like corticosteroids or TNF-alpha inhibitors have been shown to be risk factors for dissemination as well. Pregnant patients, particularly in the third trimester, have higher rates of severe infection as well. Wow. So if we are older than 65, we smoke, we have diabetes, and if we are we belong to certain ethnicities, and if we are immunosuppressed or pregnant, then that's when you have a higher risk of um, dissemination or severe disease. So that's good to know. And um, so let's say that we have a patient and we suspect that they have pulmonary coxie or body fever. So how do we do the diagnosis? Yeah, this is interesting. Um, speaking to experts, some think that um, just living in the endemic areas, many people have at least at one point been positive in their serological testing. But diagnosis um, is commonly made serologically. Um, EIA, enzyme aminoassays, is used most often you know, um, worldwide. There are more false positives than false negatives, and it varies by manufacturer. The Kern County Health Department uses immunodiffusion IgG and IgM, as well as complement fixation. Immunodiffusion IgG and IgM are scaled by non-reactive, weakly reactive, reactive, and strongly reactive. Complement fixations are scaled by a ratio dilution. Serum complement fixations of less than 1 to 2 are considered negative, and anything greater than 1 to 2 are considered positive. So there is a difference between serum complement fixation and CSF complement fixation, where the thresholds are uh, lower for CSF complement fixation, where less than one-to-one -one are considered negative and anything greater than one-to-one -one is considered positive. Culture and histopathology with the characteristic endosporulating spherules can also be used to diagnose. The serological diagnoses are less reliable early in the disease process and may take up to six weeks to be positive. Okay, so just to clarify this, uh, CSF, cerebrospinal fluid, so the complement fixation when it's less than one to one is considered negative, so the, the threshold is lower than the serum. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, it, it, if you do find it, you know, that's a sign of meningitis, 
And most likely at that point, you'll be treated lifelong with fluconazole. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, let's talk about, before we go to the meningitis, if we're going to talk that about maybe later, <laughs> let's talk about the, the lungs. So we get infections on the lungs and, uh, you know, tell us more about what happens when we have a primary pulmonary infection. Yeah, so in endemic regions, 25% of community-acquired pneumonias may be attributed to coccidiomycosis. The primary pulmonary infection may be associated with erythema nodosum or erythema multiform. Some studies have shown that with the presence of those, you may have less severe disease ultimately. Imaging typically demonstrates segmental or lobar consolidation and mediastinal adenopathy. 5 to 15% of cases are complicated by effusion. Optimal treatment is unclear due to the lack of prospective randomized controlled clinical trials, but retrospective studies have shown that about 95% of immunocompetent cases resolve on their own without treatment. That's relieving. That's very good. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I want to mention the erythema nodosum or erythema multiforme because I think um, we see many patients with those and living here in Bakersfield in this endemic area, I think we should think about coxie as our first differential because it's probably coxie until proven otherwise in this area. So it's important if you have any rashes that are um, consistent with or compatible with erythema nodosum or erythema multiform. So think about coxie. And let's say that we diagnose the patient with primary, primary pulmonary infection. So how do we treat it? So the most recent guidelines are the 2016 Infectious Disease Society of America's um, clinical practice guidelines for the treatment of coccidiomycosis, and they recommend patient education, close observation, and supportive measures such as reconditioning physical therapy for mild or non-debilitating symptoms or who have substantially improved or resolved their clinical illness by the time of diagnosis. The Valley Fever Institute treats the majority of their patients with primary disease and all patients with disseminated disease, including coccidial meningitis, uh, which requires lifelong treatment with triazoles, as we mentioned earlier. A double-blind, randomized clinical trial done by the Mycosis Study Group showed no superiority of treatment between either fluconazole or itraconazole. But fluconazole does still remain the mainstay of treatment. Um, It suppresses the growth of fungi but it does not directly kill the fungi. So the fluconazole dosage varies from person to person and institution to institution. Institutions from Arizona are more likely to treat with 400 milligrams daily, while the Valley Fever Institute tends to give a minimum of 600 to 800 milligrams daily. The duration of treatment is also variable, taking into consideration the symptoms and serology. Side effects of fluconazole include cirrhosis, alopecia, and fatigue. The therapeutic drug monitoring um, is a debated topic amongst experts. The Valley Fever Institute does routinely monitor drug levels. Okay, so it's important to um, emphasize that fluconazole is the mainstay of treatment for this uh, Valley Fever, but also the majority of patients with primary disease, so the majority, they may be treated, but not all of them, but the majority, and but all the patients with disseminated disease, they are treated with uh, antifungal medications, either fluconazole or something else. But for primary care, fluconazole should be a, um, a keyword. You know, Remember fluconazole because that's usually the treatment that we give in primary care. And um, just remember to, to do a good medication reconciliation to make sure there is no 
um, interactions with other medications and there is no contraindication to fluconazole. But for most patients that you're going to treat in primary care, you can start with fluconazole. So, but, you know, even starting fluconazole, some patients may not respond well. So that's what we call the failure of treatment. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So treatment can be stopped for you know, two main reasons. One is for intolerance um, or treatment failure. In either case, switching to other triazoles is recommended. Those triazoles include itraconazole, posaconazole, or voriconazole. Afotericin B is also used for refractory cases. Um, each has its own dosages and adverse effect profile. Disseminated disease requires closer monitoring and possibly IV amphotericin or intrathecal amphotericin. And at that point, I mean, this should be already and um, be under the care of infectious disease. So that's very good. So um, I know that there is a lot of research being done right now and uh, we're very optimistic, but tell us more about the future of coxy treatment. Yeah, okay. it, it's it's an exciting time, Dr. Ariaza. Um, there are... Um, Every few years, there's a mycosis study group, um, as well as yearly um, coccidiomycosis study group, um, where new research is being discussed by experts. So, you know, one of those, you know, there's not currently an FDA-approved vaccine for any fungal infection, but there are vaccines being developed that have shown promise um, in animal models for coccidiomycosis. Um, different drugs are also under development that have different targets um, other than triazoles like fluconazole. The role of therapeutic drug monitoring may also become clear as we um, move on into the future with this disease. You know, further research is needed to provide more specific guidelines. And since the last one is in 2016, um, hopefully we get those in the in the newer one. Well, we are optimistic about the future then. So maybe vaccines, newer drugs, and, and new research is being done. So we're very, um, you know, we're very optimistic about the future. And we see this disease commonly in the clinic and in the hospital, and many patients may become disabled. So we want to prevent that. And we hope that we can have the tools to do it in the future, and um, uh, especially to prevent complicated and disseminated cases of coxie. And this is just an introduction. You know, this episode is just an introduction for our listeners who are in primary care. But um, you can keep learning about this disease. It's, it's fascinating. And if you live in this area, so you're invited to, to learn more and to feel comfortable with this disease. Because if you're going to be living for many years, you either are going to get exposed to it or you're going to see many patients with it. And so primary care people, please um, get educated about this disease. And we're, we're happy that we're, we're lucky, actually, that we have the Valley Fever Institute and they can uh, teach us more about this disease, right? So, Love Deep, Dr. Kuhner, thank you so much for being here and it's been a pleasure. And I hope our listeners, they liked this episode as much as me. And um, do you have any final words for us? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Ariaza. So, um, in a patient with respiratory illness, I think primary care, um, especially if it's not... Um, resolved by antibiotics, keep, co keep coccidiomycosis on your differential. Um, so if you suspect pulmonary coccy, order a serology and a chest x-ray. And if you find pulmonary coccy, start treatment with fluconazole. And it's important to learn to identify patients at risk for dissemination and severe disease and refer them to the infectious disease when needed. Uh, again, thank you very much, Dr. Ariaza. This was a blast. Thank you, Dr. Corner. 
Now, we conclude episode number 143, Pulmonary Coxie Basics. Dr. Kuhner explained that this fungal infection can present with symptoms of community-acquired pneumonia. He explained that infection can disseminate to other organs or cause severe disease in a small percentage of infected patients. Because of the consequences of severe infection, Dr. Ariasa recommended primary care providers keep a high level of suspicion when patients present with any symptoms compatible with coxie infection in endemic areas. This week, we thank Hector Ariasa and Love Deep Kuhner. We give special thanks to the Valley Fever Institute for providing information for this episode. We are happy to announce that Dr. Kuhner joined our residency class of 2026. Audio editing by Adrian Silva. Even without trying, every night you go to bed a little wiser. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week podcast. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at riobravoqweek at clinicasierravista.org or visit our website, riobravofmrp.org slash qweek. See you next week.